You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Bandwidth issues have hindered communications in the wildfire response. We talked to Verizon's Vice President of Sales and Operations, Erwin Sionko, about the snapshot in getting service to its customers. The company is the largest wireless provider on Maui, but the fire damaged fiber lines and power poles, complicating the connectivity. Here's Sionko. Our cell sites operate off of two things, right? It's power and it's data. And so data, again, helps us power those cell sites to be able to provide that service. And that's the missing link at this point, because for power, we can bring in generators and things of that nature. But what we've been able to do here in Western Maui is we've been able to bring in a bunch of assets from Honolulu, uh, which we do store there you know, locally here in Hawaii, but then also brought a bunch of assets in from the mainland, uh, which we've had shipped over on planes, where it's basically satellite backhaul. So we're replacing our standard kind of fiber internet connections that are that are burnt and gone and still being worked to be replaced in uh, Western Maui and replacing all of those connections with satellites. So it has made a tremendous difference in at least people being able to make phone calls and, and have those types of conversations and send text messages. But it's not ideal for data transmission. So people that are looking to maybe surf the internet or like go to social media sites and watch videos uh, to get news updates, things like that nature. Uh, again, we're working on a more permanent solution that will open up more bandwidth to allow customers to do that type of uh, use. But for now, good news, though, is people can reach out to their friends and family via phone call and via text because of the work that we've done in deploying all of those assets throughout Western Maui. And you do uh, cover most of the cell phone uh, customers over there? Yeah, at this point, from our latest update today, so we've deployed, you know, things... It's interesting because we call the uh, place where we store all of these assets a farm, Catherine, but we have a cult, which is a cell on light truck. So it's an acronym. Uh, we have steers, right? So that's a satellite trailer emitting equipment remote, which is basically like a satellite dish and all the encompassing equipment that we plug into the cell site that provides that data that I was speaking about earlier. Uh, so we've deployed many of those assets here over the last few days. Uh, and again, for the most part, most of that area now is covered with coverage that allows phone calls and text messages. Uh, and again, we're continuing to work and improve that hour by hour to allow people to have more data use uh, over time. And at least these initial connections of folks who are unaccounted for can get in contact with their loved ones or friends or family just to let them know they're okay or where they're at. Absolutely. That, that was our primary mission was to ensure connectivity for people to even just reach out via text or phone call to let their friends and family know they're okay. Uh, and so I think we've achieved that at this point. Again, it's now just about the next phase of, you know, again, allowing once we have some of that fiber optic uh, connection back to be able to provide more of a normal experience, right? So it's about a tenth of the data speed that you would have seen prior to this uh, unfortunate incident all happening. Uh, but again, it's 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 phone calls and texts right now, and you know we're excited to be able to provide that for the majority of that community. And you have been uh, helping out also at some of the shelters, correct? Oh, absolutely. So we actually provided uh, wireless charging uh, devices to help the folks in those shelters at least try to keep their devices on and powered. So uh, four of the shelters we currently have charging uh, stations deployed. We've got. Uh, a charging station here at our store uh, at the Puanene Shopping Center, uh, as well as some bottled water if people need that as well. So customers can come in and, again, charge their devices, their battery packs, their iPads, et cetera. Uh, 
so they can stay connected. Uh, but we've got those uh, those assets deployed as well to help the community. And so we're excited to provide those as well. And then what about the long term for the fixes on the fiber connections? Yeah, I mean, obviously we're relying on some partners for that work. And so I know they're working diligently as well to bring that uh, connectivity back to the western side of the island. So we're uh, very in very close contact, obviously, with them. And uh, again, we know they're working just as hard to get connection back over there. So once that connectivity is back, again, we'll plug that into our cell sites and then we'll provide a pretty similar, if not the same experience that folks had prior to all of this happening. But have they... Have there been any discussions about the time frame? You know, will it be months, weeks? Yeah, I think from, again, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of our partners, uh, but as far as the work that's being done now, it sounds like there's some headway being made where there's some fiber that's already been laid. And so again, once that is, uh, you know, within the vicinity of our cell sites, then we partner to have that cell site connected and we'll then be able to provide again, a similar experience to but I don't have a timeline. In addition to the work that we've done on just trying to create connectivity on the ground and again, these uh, localized efforts with the charging stations, uh, we've also made sure that you know, we, we align with the Hawaii, Hawaii Community Foundation. So their Maui Strong Initiative, uh, we donated $100,000 to that. In addition to that, we've also made it to where it's very easy for our customers across the country to be able to text uh, with short code text and donate $10 to the Salvation Army or to the American Red Cross. So again, all they have to do is text wildfires to a number for the Salvation Army, or they can text Hawaii to a number and then donate $10 to the American Red Cross. So again, trying to make it easy for folks to donate. And then in addition to that, again, we're continuing to look at different ways uh, we can support the community. There's uh, some obviously some work happening with our first responders as well to ensure that they have the devices and the, and the connection they need to do their jobs. And so we're partly we're partnering closely with all of those agencies and, and departments as well. And then do you have a sense about any of your Ohana, your workers who may have lost homes? Oh, yes. I mean, we've been very, very sensitive, obviously, to caring for our employees on the island of Maui and understanding, like, you know, I live in uh, Makakilo, so I live in Oahu. And just, again, the, the connection and the you know, the degrees of separation in our community, right? And understanding that everybody's about one degree away, right? And so, yeah, we've been very thoughtful about caring for our employees and making sure that the employees here in Maui are not overwhelmed. You know, they're in their efforts to take care of our customers, they're taking on a lot of conversations that are very heavy, right? So we're making sure that as they support customers and provide solutions, that we're also taking care of them. So cycling in employees from other parts of Hawaii uh, is something that we're working on and doing. So, yeah, we just don't want anybody to be overwhelmed with everything that's happening. We certainly thank you for your time. We know it's a very busy time, but thanks again. Oh, no, thank you for the time as well. That was Verizon uh, Vice President of Sales and Operations for Hawaii and Alaska, Erwin Sionko, talking about what the company is doing to restore service and provide needed communications to the West Maui community. Uh, we did also reach out to Hawaiian Telecom. It issued a statement saying it is working to replace poles and install new fiber in Lahaina. It is also offering free community Wi-Fi uh, at three Maui shelters at this time.
Managing a disaster. That's one of the subjects of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat Editor Chad Blair is with us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so you've got some uh, uh, pretty uh, major stories today online. Uh, one of them has to do with the uh, emergency operations. Yes. Uh, first story from Christina Jedra. The second story from Stuart Yurton. Uh, Christina's story is about Herman Andaya. Uh, the fellow that's leading the Maui Emergency Management Agency. And in many ways, the headline to that story poses it exactly, uh, (laughs) precisely. Was Maui's emergency operations chief in over his head? Christina did some research, found out that uh, Mr. Andaya is not an expert in emergency management. That is not in his training. His background is political science and law. I think he has a law degree. This is a civil service role, and Andaya did manage to beat out 40 other applicants for the position. Questions have been raised about whether it might have been political. Uh, Herman Andaya is the former chief of staff to the former mayor, Alan Arakala, over there in Maui County. Uh, to Andaya's defense, he said, look, I, I have participated in emergency operations. I've got online team and training. Uh, but others are raising questions. For example, Andaya said recently that those sirens didn't go off because that's not really an option. Those are really for tsunamis. Well, that's not true. The Hawaii Emergency Management website says, in fact, those sirens are for a lot of purposes, hurricanes, flooding, volcanoes erupting, and yes, wildfires. Well, was he on island at the time? He was not, and we reported that earlier this week. Not only that, we haven't heard much from him since. He has not been making many appearances. Uh, at the press conferences, there's another one today, by the way, in Wailuku at 1.30 with the governor, Mayor Bisson, and others. And, and so that's got some people questioning uh, really how hands-on he is. Um, and and um, this is something that, that a lot of people are wondering about. A former Hawaii management expert said, you really can't have somebody on the job who doesn't have this kind of experience in emergencies. That really is costing lives, to well, be frank. Well, I would like to think that there is a protocol, you know, there's a process that needs to be uh, followed. And if he doesn't happen to be there, you know, because he's off island, then the number two person, I would imagine, would step up and, and follow the protocol. So lots of questions raised. Exactly. Now, the, the second story from Stewart is about the, the story that we reported on yesterday that has to do with uh, trying to get wa- water in Maui from the state uh, to help deal with those fires as soon as they broke. Stewart has to follow. Uh, he's got memos, letters from Glenn Tremble. He's the guy that runs West Maui Land, right? That's the, the company that has operations in land development and as well as uh, water operations. And remember what he did? He, he tried to get DLNR to, to let them get water from the state in order to start addressing those fires. But he was turned down for many hours. That's because Kaleo Manuel, he's the guy that runs the, the Water Resource Management Department. He's a deputy director at DLNR. Declined to let that happen, said he had to get permission from Terrell Farmers. Again, it's complicated. That chain of command comes into question. Uh, by the time the water was released, five hours later, uh, it may well have been too late. By then, the fires had already cut off access uh, to a lot of the areas that needed the water in Lahaina. So, yeah, the, the question is, yeah, wh- what's the process going forward? Uh, you know, do we need a, a, a new policy in place to deal with uh, public safety? I think that's exactly uh, the question that is being raised now. And 
we wonder whether that's going to be something that will be dealt with soon. Right now, we're also focused on recovery, getting folks the help that they need. But you have to ask these questions, I believe, when the, the time is fresh, when the thing is happening in real time, so that you get the information that you need, you get the answers. But uh, again, titles kind of captured, <laughs> headlines captured uh, this story as well. Here's it. The Lahaina Fire could prompt the state to change how it manages water on Maui. And so that is the issue going forward. Uh, many issues that would have to be taken up at the legislature that, that's going to involve any number of things can't be done overnight. Water policy is complicated. Yeah, well, we definitely want to get the facts, uh, you know, who said what, when, and, you know, uh, whose responsibility is it? And and if there's a public safety issue, it seems that should trump everything. <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. lots of questions. And I think that's the message that the governor has been trying to stress as well. But a lot of questions, a lot of work for A.G. Ann Lopez to take on in her investigation as to what happened. Yeah, lots to uh, unpack there. Thank you so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was editor Chad Blair with today's reality chat. To read those stories by Stuart Yurton and Christina Jadra, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, featuring LEED certification services for residential and commercial building projects. Learn more at greenbuildinghawaii.com. Aloha, I'm Bert Lum. If you're interested in science, technology, and Hawaii's innovation economy, tune into Bite Marks Cafe on Hawaii Public Radio HPR1 today at 6.30 p.m. The U.S. Small Business Administration opened its Business Recovery Center in Kihei, Maui, as residents impacted by the recent wildfires look for ways to rebuild their lives. The SBA says it stands ready to assist Hawaii businesses and residents with low-interest federal disaster loans. The conversation's Russell Subiano sat down with Cynthia Cowell, the SBA's public information officer, in our studios. Cowell grew up on the Big Island and says she asked for the assignment here so she could help the people of her home state. Uh, we have people on the ground there right now, okay. and we're expecting, I think, 19 SBA customer service representatives to help businesses and residents with their recovery funds. Is there anything that you can share with our listeners at this point in time? Well, I can give you a little bit of, an, of a highlight of what the SBA Disaster Recovery Program entails. Okay. We make low-interest government loans mm -hmm. straight from the Treasury to businesses of all sizes, private nonprofit organizations, and homeowners and renters. Now, for homeowners and renters, they just increase the limit of the loan. So we can loan up to $500,000 to a homeowner to make repairs to their primary residence, up to $100,000 for homeowners and renters to replace their personal property, and that would be any property they take with them when they move. And then for businesses, we can lend up to $2 million in combination for physical damage and economic loss. Even if the business was not affected by the fires, they may have lost customers, like the businesses up in Kaanapali. They aren't having the line of visitors that they had before. So we can help business with that. I know there will be a lot of people who need assistance in especially financial assistance in a lot of different ways and and you mentioned it before but i just wanted to emphasize that even though 
these are loans from the Small Business Administration, they are also available to homeowners and renters as well, right? Yes, okay. yes. And that's only the disaster loans. The regular SBA business loans, the 7A program, and the, all of those are for businesses. But these disaster recovery and resilience loans are for homeowners, renters, businesses of all sizes. And we can also offer a little bit on top of what, what you borrow um, to help with mitigation. So maybe you can hardy, harden your home for, let's say, earthquakes. Maui gets earthquakes um, or hurricanes. Well, Haina doesn't get a lot of hurricanes, but you know they, they can do something to make their home more resilient. Maybe put in a sprinkler system, even though fires don't happen all the time. I know that interest rates on loans are always something that are an important consideration for those considering taking out a loan. What are some of the ballpark rates that that um, people should be aware of if they are in need of, of these disaster assistance loans? Well, for homeowners and renters, the low rate is 2.5%. That's very low. Yep. And for businesses, it's 4%. For private nonprofits, it's 2.375%, which is very low. And this can include churches. They can they can get help. And... Uh, for for their for their losses that's a good thing that you bring up so nonprofits are also included in the eligibility for this because i know there were a handful of historic places that that were lost and i i'm going to assume that there were probably some nonprofit headquarters that were greatly impacted so the nonprofits are also included in eligibility yes they are this is one form of assistance that can provide an influx of funds to help those impacted who may have lost everything. You know, when we see situations like this, people are sometimes literally starting over from the beginning. How many of them are are historically are able to pay back the loans? I think that's a consideration. I think a lot of people- We have a very low non-payment rate. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can't give you a, an exact percentage, but most people pay their bills. Okay. Especially in Hawaii, you're taught, pay your bill. That's right, that's right. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think in a, in a situation like this, you know, people need help to get back on their feet. What would you say to somebody who feels like a loan may be kind of akin to a student loan where, they may be paying this, you know, for the next 30, 40 years or something like that. Well, it can be a long term. Um, we offer up to 30 years, usually 30 years for homeowners and renters. And we we will work with you. We, we want to find a comfortable payment amount for you. If your home has has a mortgage on it, we can talk to you uh, or, or your business. You can, we can talk to you about possibly refinancing that existing mortgage at the low rate, if that'll help you to qualify. So it does give you some re breathing room. And I know right now people are just in shock. They don't know what to do first. And it's important that people first go ahead and file your insurance claim. That's your, that's your funding of choice. That you don't have to pay back. You've been paying on it for years, use it. And then register with FEMA. Everybody should register with FEMA. FEMA will look at just their income and refer people to SBA. If you are referred to SBA, it's very important that you go ahead and apply. You don't have to take a loan if it's offered to you. And if you don't qualify for a loan, we may be able to refer you back to FEMA for further grant consideration. And then if, if you apply with or register with FEMA and you filed your insurance claim, your next stop should be 
apply with SBA. Don't wait until everything's settled. The deadline to apply is October 10th for physical damage. For economic losses to a business, it's not until May of next year. But for this one, there's a 90-day period where you can file your claim or apply. For those that would like to accept this assistance or would like more information on it, how do they go about applying it or finding more information about the loans? Well, we're going to be located in the disaster recovery centers that FEMA and the state are opening on Maui. And it'll be very soon. I, I don't have exact details on when that'll open. SBA will also open a business recovery center with staff that is expert in doing business loans. If you don't have your documents, I know that the last thing you think about is your last two years of income tax returns when you're fleeing a fire, but go ahead and apply. We'll tell you what we need to get your loan going. And it sounds like you guys are coming from a mindset that you're you're willing to help and, and uh, work with people to help them get through this this process. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with listeners out there? Well, it's very important to apply. You know, a lot of people are saying, I don't want a loan. We've just come through COVID and it really, really hit us hard. Just go ahead and apply. Like I said, you don't have to accept the loan. It's better to have the money available though and not need it than it is to need the money. And then on October 15th, you decide, oh no, my insurance isn't gonna pay as much as I thought. So just go ahead and apply. And, and get in there. It's a 60-day application period, October 10th, 2023. And this is for the fires that began on August 8th, and they're still going. Well, thank you so much for your time, Cynthia. I really appreciate you coming into the station. Thank you. That was uh, the U.S. Small Business Administration's Cynthia Cowell talking with HBR's Russell Subiono about the variety of disaster loans available to Hawaii businesses and residents impacted by the Maui wildfires. Remember, file your insurance claim, register with FEMA, don't wait, then apply with SBA. We'll have a link to more information on office hours and location on the conversation page of our website later today. of Maui and Molokai have always had close ties to family, friends, and basic needs. HPR reporter Catherine Kluwit-Pactel is on the line with updates on how the community of Molokai has been called to serve. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. So, yeah, what are you seeing on your end? Well, I think it's just important to highlight um, not only from Molokai, but across the state, how communities have come together to uh, come to Maui's aid and help residents, friends, family. It's just been an incredible thing to witness. Everybody that I've talked to on Maui feels the love and, um, you know, that there was very little initial government assistance from what they felt like. And so they felt like, um, you know, each other was the best way to support. And um, that's usually the case. So, of course, everyone is doing their part, but Amoloka'i residents have donated um, hugely, uh, gathered donation supplies to support Maui. Kui Adolfo is one of those who organized uh, one of the efforts. They shipped pallets of supplies by Kamaka Air and private boats to the West Maui community. You know, Molokai, when it comes to these kinds of things, 
there's just so many people who just will drop everything and give without caring about themselves. We don't have a lot of stores that we can buy stuff, but we definitely have stuff that we're willing to give. So just kind of put it out there, never thinking that it would be this much or like pretty overwhelmed by how much stuff was brought. And it's just been crazy and overwhelming just to to know like how giving people can be. And a lot of Molokai people have Maui family ties. So I think that's really where it's hitting home and we want to help as much as we can. Yeah, I mean, they're all part of the same county, right? For sure. All last week, Molokai was collecting donations of clothing, food, water, baby items, gas, um, other essentials, and had a big drive on Saturday as well. Groups of Molokai volunteers worked to sort clothing and donations to make it more usable once um, these items arrived on Maui. And a steady stream of boats from Molokai transported supplies to Maui. They were able to bring supplies directly to those who were who have still been sheltering on the beach just outside of Lahaina. Here's uh, one of those boat captains, Chris Minka. I saw what was going on the night before and how people were in the water. And I have friends that live on the boats in Lahaina Harbor and family there too. First thing in the morning, I told my wife, I'm springing into action. I'm going to go help whoever's out there. Yeah, I've seen so many uh, images of uh, people on boats uh, coming to the rescue, you know, delivering those supplies, just going out to help wherever they can. For sure. I mean, there is a flood from, from all over the place. Um, and Minka was just shocked to see Lahaina from the water when he arrived. It was just, you know, as, as everyone has seen, just completely devastated. When Minka got to Maui the morning after the fire, the Coast Guard was still searching for people who, like you said, had jumped in the water to escape the fire that night. He did help look, but he said by the time he arrived, um, most folks were, were already out. Um, he spent the rest of that day handing out water and whatever he had on his boat to those who were who were right there on the beach. He came back to Molokai for another supply run uh, that afternoon. So we were taking supplies to Maui by the end of the first day. Second day, uh, my friend Kamaili Alcon calls me up and he says he's got nine pallets of food water and ice to take to Maui because a lot of people that we know in Maui live out on the Kahana side, Kahanapali side, where everybody from Lahaina town had retreated to. So we know a lot of people out there and they were calling out to us and we just stepped up and took nine pallets of food and water and ice. Yeah, you know, when uh, I had talked to DLNR and I was asking about all those vessels that were uh, permitted there in the harbor, and I'd asked if there were uh, permits for liveaboards, and they said, nope, there's not supposed to be liveaboards. So, you know, if there were people living on their boats and they didn't get out, that is a concern. For sure. DLNR says uh, before the fire, there were about 100 vessels anchored in the Lahaina Harbor. And afterwards, only about nine boats were still above water, which is just incredible to think about the fire damaging, you know, way out in the harbor as well. Um, as you said, I don't know how many folks were living on boats, but certainly we know that many folks from Lahaina were jumping into the water to, to just escape the fire. So there was a lot of folks um, that night that spent the night in the water and, um, and, came ashore right there near Lahaina. So, um, you know, officials had blocked the road access 
to the area, uh, citing con- safety concerns and, of course, the ongoing search and rescue efforts. But it also meant that those who were hit the hardest um, didn't initially have access to those much-needed supplies that were, were kind of right there waiting for them. So um, it was really crucial for them to have boat access, uh, the Maui folks or the Molokai folks, as well as, um, you know, boats coming from Maui, from Ma'alaya side, um, to just get them water and food and <laughs> whatever they needed and, and all those donations coming from Molokai, um, from what I hear, were, were much appreciated as well. Yeah, and your boat captain brought back some uh, uh, evacuees as well over there to, to he Molokai. He did. He did. So those folks who had who had family on Molokai um, were able to come back and, and shelter with them in some cases, though he said a lot of folks wanted to stay on Maui um, to search for missing family members. Yeah, just uh, such drama unfolding. But thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. That was HBR's Catherine Kluwit-Pactall on Molokai's efforts uh, to support Maui. Uh, you can read her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Aloha United Way 211, a statewide comprehensive helpline connecting people with community resources by phone, text, live chat, or email, auw211.org, or by dialing 211. This Saturday, HPR presents Kailana. This in-person event is part of HPR's Indie 808 Performance Series. Experience this exclusive set at our Atherton studio in Honolulu. Purchase your tickets online at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Lauren Hana Chai, The Five Senses, an exploration of contemporary identity. Now on view, honolulumuseum.org. Housing was tight on Maui before the devastating fires. And this morning, we had the chance to talk to Kali Watson, who heads the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. This is his second stint at the helm of the agency, whose mission is to put Native Hawaiian beneficiaries on homestead land. Watson says, fortunately, the fire spared most of the DHHL housing units on the Valley Isle. Well, in Maui, we have a few homesteading projects that we're moving forward on. There's a 161-unit project in Bunani, and we just acquired a couple more using the 600 million we got and so total of maybe close to 600 new units that we'll be putting up our first project punani we had a groundbreaking and we're actually moving forward and putting in the infrastructure we do have another project kind of north of lahaina called lealii and phase one has already been completed that was done maybe 13 years ago involving 104 homesteads Fortunately, with the wildfire, we were fortunate in that most of the homes uh, escaped the fire to a major degree. It didn't burn down of the 104, only two. So there was some roof damage. So we were a little concerned about that. Well, we'll talk about, yeah, when you folks heard the news about the devastation, I mean, were you able to dispatch a team then to just kind of assess? We worked with our commissioner and staff over there. Randy Wall, I, I got to give him kudos in that he immediately got very active in 
working with the community, doing an assessment, assisting our staff in getting porta potties and generators, as well as water and other donations, coordinated with some of the people over there, homesteaders. Archie, one of the homesteaders over there, has been very active. And, you know, again, he's another individual that I have to thank. But on our side, we, we did dispatch several people immediately, including staff, to check out the situation. And fortunately, you know, it wasn't as severe as the surrounding areas, which was totally devastated. All the houses were burned down. And, you know, we uh, are setting up some things at the office trailer that should be, I think, in place by Thursday, where we'll have staff as well as people on board, accessible to kind of take a look at the insurance claims as well as FEMA, as well as other things we can do to help so that that's going to be in place pretty quick. You mentioned that only two of the units suffered damage. Yeah, two of the houses were completely destroyed. So we uh, are working with Dowling Development Company. They've provided some models that uh, maybe we can use to replace the homes. Obviously, we're going to try and fast track that. So we're also working with them to make their claims with their insurance as well as FEMA, if, if that needs to kick in and cover the shortage. We're also prepared to provide any resources that are needed to uh, facilitate that. I think the more immediate concern are the damaged existing roofs. The game plan is to replace them all, but I think with the storms in close proximity to Hawaii, we need to kind of shore up the damaged roofs, at least temporarily, so that we can you know, protect the, the interior like contents. With, with tarps and things like with, that, just for the short term. Exactly. Uh, thicker tarps. I believe that's in process right now. And then talk about the construction materials that you folks are using, because you had mentioned that may have helped to minimize some of the damage. Yeah, I, I think, and taking a look at you know, I was really surprised that all the surrounding areas just burnt to the ground. But our, our homestead community basically, and, and partly because of their fighting the fire themselves and getting together, so you gotta give the community credit. But I think key to the situation and not being as bad as it could have been was the construction material that was used. The siding was a cementus board. I believe they call it hardy plank or something like that. And then on the roofing, it was asphalt shingles that were fire resistant. And so those two, I think, construction materials and use of that really, I think, prevented to a major extent the houses from burning down. And so we're going to use that, I guess, experience and knowledge to, in the future, for our projects to incorporate that kind of building material so that we, we can use and take advantage of this learning experience. We had a terrible housing crisis before this disaster, and you know now it's worse. I'm sure you're just more resolved than ever to just go full speed ahead with the projects to get beneficiaries in homes where you can. Yeah, we're going to accelerate our housing projects. We have several that are in the works. The Pu'unani project is involves about 161 units, and so I've advised the contractor to move forward quickly on that. So we've already broken ground, and the infrastructure is going in. And so we're also going to accelerate the process of identifying homesteaders off the wait list and then using our approach on 
rather than just doing turnkey units, also doing Habitat for Humanity, Owner Builder, as well as uh, what we call light tech or low-income housing tax credits with option to purchase, which will basically address all the people on our waiting list. One of the things I'm trying to do is avoid the typical situation where just uh, more affluent Hawaiians can you know, afford that $400,000 mortgage and the rest kind of sit on the sideline and don't have access to a new home. So that's gonna change. We're gonna make it where across the board, we'd be able to offer a house to anybody on the wait list that wants one. Uh, we're also gonna do some transitional housing for people that aren't really set up yet and aren't ready. We wanna do- For home ownership, uh, you're talking. For home ownership, as well as uh, whether it's a lack of a job or their credit situation is challenging. So they need some counseling to kind of correct that situation as well as you know deal with various issues that need to be resolved before they're really in a position to uh, take on home ownership. And you just recently rolled out a new program with agricultural land. Yeah, in Paneva, we started this uh, subsistence ag lot program. Uh, we did about 16 awards and those particular awards were a half an acre and we will go up to three acres. And in this particular program, the come off the uh, waiting list for ag, and then what the advantage is, not only does it allow them to grow food as well as have animals on their lot or homestead, which they can sustain and support their family as well as their neighbors, but more importantly, they also can put a house up. And so with this particular approach, you know, this, that's why we call it a subsistence ag lot. Is there anything that we need to take a closer look at, given what we saw with these wildfires, you know, whether it's Agland and Upper Kula or, you know, Townside, you know, there's the concern about the invasive grasses and, and the threats that really have just been magnified? Yeah, I, I think partly because of the sugar plantations going away and having all these vacant lots just or land just sitting idle. Obviously, they become more susceptible to invasive plants and growth that creates kind of like a feedstock almost for these wildfires. And so we need to start to really turn these lands into more productive lands that not only will entail using our water resources more wisely, but also accessing it and distributing it in a way that makes these lands not only productive, but less susceptible to these wildfires. So that also entails looking at the different, I guess, business opportunities, whether it's in the homesteading or in the private sector, as well as the state, they need to be more active. I think they also need to take a look at the uh, construction materials that are being used on these houses that make them vulnerable to these kind of wildfires. So they, we may learn from this and it may prompt some policy decisions or changes going forward. Yeah, I know we've learned definitely the DHHL. And so we're going to make immediate adjustments to the way we put out our RFQs. And with the developers we work with, uh, the, the specs, we're going to have a big say on what they can use in the approach they use in developing our future homestead communities. That was part of a conversation that we had this morning with Kali Watson, uh, Department of Hawaiian Homelands Director. We were talking about the impact of the fires on homestead projects. Uh, the department is working to expedite projects to help meet the growing need of getting a more Native Hawaiians into housing.
This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Have you ever seen an alai akeokeo? It's our endemic coot found in wetlands throughout the Hawaiian Islands. Despite its widespread territory, its small population numbers can make this bird hard to find. But we've got its call for you today, courtesy of the Macaulay Library at Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. Here's University of Hawaii's Patrick Hart with today's Manu Minute. Alae Keokeo, or Hawaiian coots, are water birds that are found on all the main Hawaiian islands except Kaho'olawe, and are endemic to Hawaii, meaning that they're found nowhere else in the world. They're also considered to be endangered, with less than 2,000 individuals left. About the size of a small duck, both male and female Alae Keokeo are mostly black, with white bills and a prominent bright white shield above their bill. Unlike ducks, their toes are lobed instead of webbed, which allows them to better walk on land. Hawaiian coots are mainly found in coastal wetland areas, kalo fields, and aquaculture ponds where they eat a variety of aquatic plants, shellfish, and fish. In Hawaiian mythology, alae keokeo are known for their chattiness and harsh warning cries. Alae keokeo have a really interesting nesting behavior where they often construct floating nests out of aquatic vegetation. This allows them to avoid many introduced mammalian predators such as dogs, cats, rats, and mongoose. A recent paper from a UH Manoa graduate student showed that predicted sea level rise from global warming will cause a significant reduction in their nesting and foraging habitat. However, this could be offset and even reversed if traditional indigenous farming techniques, such as the maintenance of lo'i for kalo, are expanded into former agricultural wetlands. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah, featuring hydroflow permeable pavers. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about how hydroflow pavers are designed to allow rainwater to find its way back to the island's aquifers and reduce runoff. For nearly 25 years, ebb and flow concerts have been a mainstay in our music community. And this weekend, a show entitled Duo Diorama, uh, featuring violin and piano, will go on. Any donations for the concert will go to the Maui Food Bank. A favorite classical music couple who has been featured here in HBR's Atherton studio has returned. Winston Choi and Ming Huanju. The two run respective programs, Strings and Piano, at Roosevelt University's Chicago College of Performing Arts. We spoke to them about the upcoming program uh, Saturday in Kihei Maui. I think the music provides something that has a certain level of comfort, and it, as you're saying, it soothes the soul, but I think it's, it's a chance to escape reality. And, and a lot of the times we're playing music where composers wrote this music specifically to divert their own attention from something difficult they were grappling with within their own lives. And music was the, either a direct response to that, so they're writing music to, to, to really describe the emotions that are occurring, or sometimes it's a diversion. So they're writing something in a very different style in order to lift themselves up or lift up listeners. And I think throughout history, you find all sorts of great music was written 
in very trying times or in response to these very trying times. So I think it's a little bit of both. Some, some of the music will be hopeful to our listeners, maybe give them some inspiration, something to, to kind of hang on to. And other things will really just grapple with the, the, the harshness of life and some of the struggles that we share throughout humanity. And so that can be a way of, of coping and dealing with some of the, the, the pain that we're all going through. Yeah, so Ming Wan, I mean, this this helped with the healing. Oh, absolutely, Catherine. I think you know, you, you know, you're right on when you said you know, music has healing power and 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 heals the soul. But and I also think that it's you know, it's such a powerful communication tool. You know, in order to heal, sometimes we have to tap into those emotions. You know, sometimes it's the emotions are filled with struggles and challenges and pain and. Um, um, and this program we're bringing in, it has that, but also there's also many moments in the program that it's very hopeful, um, uplifting, um, you know, and it also bring us, um, you know, remind us how important it is to be resilient. So even though at this difficult time, you know, we're very hopeful that we'll still be able to go, you know, and to be able to bring this wonderful program there to Maui. And when you were scheduled to come here before during COVID, I believe you were going to go to several different islands, but I think this is just limited to Maui. Uh, but maybe Maui is where the greatest need is to hear your music. It's meant to be, isn't yeah. it? Yes, yes. And so, and, and it's very interesting how, you know, we've been to, as we mentioned earlier, we've been to Maui, oh my gosh, you know, five times already. But we've never brought our kids. We have 11-year-old twins. And so... Each time, you know, because they were so young and, um, you know, the islands are, you know, it's pretty far from the mainland. So we often drop them off with the grandparents. So <laughs> 2020 was the first time we promised them we're going to actually bring them. But that didn't happen. So this time we're also looking forward to bring the kids to Maui. We've told them so many wonderful things about Maui and how beautiful it is. But again, we're hoping to bring some beautiful music and uh, be able to help to heal well, we have lost so many cultural treasures there on Front Street in Lahaina Town, including a historic church, you know, many historic buildings. And so there's, I think, a deep sense of cultural loss because of the history uh, of Lahaina. We're just trying to get through these times and get back to some sense of normalcy for families, you know, as they try and figure out where they're going to stay and try to rebuild their lives. Yeah, yeah, and I think when it comes to difficult times like this, and and people often go to arts and music and for comfort, and so um, you know, again, our hearts go out to everybody in the island. To I know that Robert and his family is doing okay, um, but many are not and have lost home. We've been following the news, and people have lost family members and lost home and their belongings, and so it, it's a lot of heartbreak there and you know we're sending our thoughts to them yeah i know that hearts are heavy right now well we hope that uh, your concert goes on and you can help to uplift spirits during this time but you know uh, winston i don't know talk about you know uh the department that you folks are involved in the music department there at the university both minghuan and myself are directors of our respective programs so for minghuan she's the director of the string program at roosevelt university and I'm the director of the piano program 
And we are in a unique position to oversee like a, a really wonderful group of students and colleagues. We have some really fantastic pedagogues and world-class performers that we're lucky to call our colleagues and work alongside with. Um, and then the student body really attracts students from all around the world. It's a, quite an international program from many different continents. And we have a nice kind of cross-section of students that have just finished high school um, to some older students that have uh, been out there in the real world and have worked for some time getting graduate degrees or postgraduate degrees. So it's a very involved, uh, performance-heavy curriculum that takes advantage of a lot of what Chicago has to offer, it's the, the metropolitan offerings, the art scene, the networking and connections and, and that sort of thing. So we're both, I can say, we're both very proud to be working here. Well, I know Robert Pollock, you know, has worked a long time building that ebb and flow program there on Maui just to elevate modern music and to, to help all of us appreciate, you know, the wonderful music that exists out there. Yes. I'll, I'll say two things, and I'm sure Minghuan wants to say um, a few words as well. But we've been dear friends of Robert Pollock and his lovely wife, Cuisine, and also have gotten to know the, the audience, uh, several board members as well as people that have come back throughout the years. And we found the audience to be extremely warm, very curious. And, but it all starts from the top with Robert, who is a real visionary. Uh, his, his deep love for music and connecting with today's music, on what composers are creating today, yesterday, within the last few decades, more recent works, and championing them and, and finding a platform to share it. And it's he's inspiring to us as performers. Um, we also, of course, love performing his music, and that's uh, one of his pieces is to be featured on our performance. Oh, terrific. Anything else you want to add, Mingwan? Well, you know, Evan's Low M program has been so dear to our hearts and over you know, every trip we went to Maui um, and uh, Hawaii, it's because we're involved with Ebb and Flow and uh, with Robert Pollock. And so and I agree with everything Winston said. Um, he's such a visionary person. He stays true and authentic and honest to music, and he's so passionate about music. So we are looking forward to, you know, performing this program. And um, yes, his composition called Serenade is going to be on the program. And it's a beautiful piece, and it's very personal um, to him. He dedicated the piece to his granddaughter, Celeste, and um, it's got some very in intense and emotions. And there's also uh, struggles and pain. He wrote it because his granddaughter was going through some health scare, but thankfully she's doing great right now. And But that piece, you know, again, it has such a intense emotions that there's struggles and pain. There's also hope. And um, so in, in some ways, I feel like this piece reflects really well for what Maui is right now. So I hope that we'll be able to come and perform it. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, both of you. Thank, thank you, you so, so much, much Catherine. Catherine. Thank okay. you for having us. That was Duo Diorama, who will be performing Saturday at the Kiawala'i Congregational Church in Kihe, Maui. Donations at the door will go to the Maui Food Bank. And we leave you with this piece to help soothe your soul as we try to pull together as a community to get through the difficult weeks and the months ahead.
Well, we are all out of time now, but up tomorrow, we plan to hear directly from Governor Josh Green as part of a regular check-in with the man on the fifth floor. Have a Maui story to share? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find our archive shows online by searching for The Conversation Podcast. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.